Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord, Editor-in-Chief of No Film School. I am Emily Booter, Managing Editor. And I'm John Fusco, Producer. It's November 11th, 2016, and on this week's show, we have a new president. How will this affect filmmakers? Also, GoPro learns that karma is a bitch. And as always, news you can use about gear, upcoming deadlines, new film releases, and in Ask No Film School, what should you use to build your film's website? Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, coming at you from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School, and right across the water from where both of our U.S. presidential campaigns had their big wrap-up parties last night. Well, one wasn't a party, really. Wrap-up party events. <laughs> yeah. We're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films, and... Uh, Watching uh, the election, too. Or that. But it's, hey, it's finally over. We don't have to worry about it. It's finally over or it's just beginning. Yeah. Um, On that note, if we sound a little sleepy today, it's because we are recording this on Wednesday after having been up to the wee hours on Tuesday night watching our country's presidential election results roll in. And as you surely know by now, the U.S. has a new Republican president. I'm sure we all have plenty of things to say about this. But as always, we here at Indie Film Weekly are looking at the news through a filmmaker's lens. Pun intended. Huh. Today is a humorless day. Yeah. <laughs> One of the ways the party in power affects artists is that they control funding for the National Endowment for the Arts, or the NEA. The U.S. is not like other countries, uh, for those of you who might be listening from abroad, where there's like ample funding dedicated to film and specific national film programs. The NEA is our only national resource for arts funding, including film, and it's the largest grant maker to arts organizations rather than individual filmmakers in, in the U.S., Arts and arts funding tend to do poorly when there's a conservative power base. In fact, in 1995, then House Speaker Newt Gingrich, who was a big Donald Trump supporter and surrogate during this election cycle, called for the National Endowment for the Arts to be eliminated completely. Seriously? Mm-hmm. Along with the National Endowment for the Humanities, which also does some film funding when they're humanities related, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which is um, in the U.S. the outlet that shows the greatest amount of uh, independent documentary work in, in our country. The organizations weren't shut down at that time, but the NEA funding was cut almost in half. It was, it was our country's greatest war on the arts, certainly in my lifetime. So even though Bill Clinton, a Democrat, was president at that time... It was also the first year that Republicans controlled both the Senate and the House since the 1950s. So if these historic trends continue, then having both a Republican president and a Republican-controlled Congress, as we will come January, doesn't bode well for artists. And Newt Gingrich is actually going to have a place in Trump's cabinet, I think, is That's very what likely. the rumors are saying. So Maybe he'll be capital arts killer. New job. Yeah. So, you know, in addition to just who's in control, which party's in control, there's something about this particular leader that has me concerned as a media maker. Even though he's a New Yorker himself, the New Yorker magazine did not hold back on its views today. Uh, Their lead story this morning was headlined, An American Tragedy. I bring this up not to 
share particular political views, but because the article points out something that directly affects us in this room and in this listenership and in the No Film School community. So David Remnick, who wrote that article, said, The electorate has, in its plurality, decided to live in Trump's world of vanity, hate, arrogance, untruth, and recklessness. His disdain for democratic norms is a fact that will lead, inevitably, to all manner of national decline and suffering. Okay, now this feels like a very dire and extreme response, so I'm not necessarily advocating his entire uh, verbiage there. But the one phrase in that paragraph that points directly to my concerns is his disdain for democratic norms. So that includes like free speech. Exactly. That's where I was going with this. So one of the democratic norms that Donald Trump has eschewed throughout his campaign is freedom of the press. Um, At the beginning, he merely mocked reporters sort of along the same lines of, you know, mocking everyone else. But as his campaign went on, he began to suppress and even threaten them to the point where some reporters felt that they had to bring their own private security to cover Trump campaign events because of the potential mob mentality that Trump would whip up by pointing them out in the crowds. Um, What this means to me is that we will have to be especially vigilant and have each other's backs over the next few years when it comes to making sure that our rights to free speech, free press and free expression as artists and filmmakers are protected. And along those lines, we just came out with a massive super post about knowing your rights as a filmmaker, didn't we, last week? So that's something that you can check out. That's uh, part of our production Bible sort of section. something you can study up now Probably i think a good moment to be uh, well aware of <laughs> yeah stay woke point, you know stay woke. dad stay woke dad i don't know what that means no matter where we stand on the political spectrum there's no question that this campaign has been a wild ride and i'm personally looking forward to the movies that end up coming out about this you know unquestionably dramatic moment in u.s history One of them has actually already happened. In one of the most ambitious Election Day docs to date, more than 40 filmmakers collaborated on a film that will be called 11816, because, you know, Election Day. It was a really impressive group of indie directors who were involved, filming in more than 30 states. Allison Clayman, uh, who did the Ai Weiwei documentary, Pete's Dragon director, David Lowry, Why We Fight director, Eugene Jarecki, my girl Alma Harrell of Love True. An interesting part of the experiment is that about half of these filmmakers were streaming their footage live to to Periscope throughout the day. Uh, The film will go into post-production immediately and is slated to be released by The Orchard next spring. You know, interestingly, an aside is that um, one of the only people that really truly predicted this outcome was a filmmaker himself, Mr. Michael Moore. He, from the very beginning, he was saying, don't listen to the polls. These are the reasons why Trump's going to win. And he laid it all out for us and nobody listened to him. So Michigan uh, born bred too. Yeah, he knows the Rust Belt. So that was a big state to lose last night. One of the things I really respect about what he did, which is a little bit different than his normal form too, and that we could all take a lesson from, I think, right now, is that instead of just getting out there and bashing who the the people he felt were his opposition, he really tried to understand where they were coming from. And I think it's a moment we all have to do that in our work and in our lives. So while not as high stakes as the presidential election, we are entering the beginning of film awards season. And thus, both the Cinema Eye Honors and International Documentary Awards announced their nominees last week. 
Um, these are the top documentary honors, and it's nice to see not only a lot of consensus between them, but also that a lot of them line up with some of our favorites and films we've covered this past year. In fact, they both have the same exact lineup for Best Feature nominees, Camera Person, Fire at Sea, I Am Not Your Negro, OJ Made in America, and Wiener. The only difference is that the IDA also included Ava DuVernay's 13th. I think we covered like almost all of them. So we'll link to our articles about these uh, films in this week's podcast post, and we will look forward to bringing you coverage of the winners when they're announced. What is your winner? You too? Because I haven't seen any of them. <laughs> I wish I had, but... Camera person, I would say. I know Emily was wild about camera person. I loved um, hearing Kristen Johnson, the filmmaker, um, give a master class about her 25-year career at Camden, and that made the film kind of even more special. I wrote about it on the site. But I think I think Fire at Sea is my favorite among these, although I still haven't seen Wiener, and I know um, it's been, like, absolutely adored yeah, what's cool about those documentaries is they kind of... <laughs> oh, <movie>. yes. <laughs> it's been exalted. <laughs> um, it's uh, it's interesting how different a lot of these documentaries are mm-hmm. in, in terms of form. They, I think each of them is completely different tonally and narratively. Yeah, that's a good point. It's a, it's really, it's a banner year for docs, I think. While we're talking about talented filmmakers, I have a bit of sad news to report today. The French cinematographer Raoul Coutard died yesterday at the age of 96. He was most famous for working on Breathless, which was actually the second feature film he shot ever. Um, He was the French New Wave cinematographer. He shot 75 films throughout his career. Oh, my God. Yeah, including Godard's Breathless, as I said, Francois Truffaut's Jules et Jim, Jacques Demy's Lola, Costa Gavras Z. And his latest film was in 2001. It was Felipe Garel's Sauvage Innocence. And I don't speak French, so pardon my French. No. <laughs> oui? You oh wouldn't say. <laughs> uh, Raoul Cotard actually never intended to be a cinematographer. He kind of fell into it. He first established himself as a war photographer and then later came back to the U.S. and was a freelance journalist and took photographs for the prestigious Look magazine, which is now defunct. Um, And he was actually asked to photograph his first feature film and didn't understand that it was going to be moving images. (laughs) Yeah. So he became a DP essentially without ever having held a movie camera. Speaking to The Guardian last year, Cotard said, quote, I agreed. But if I had known that the job was actually director of photography and that the film was to be in CinemaScope, I would have never said yes. So he faked it till he made it. And a French producer discovered his talent and picked him up to shoot the debut film of a young critic named Jean-Luc Godard. Sacre bleu. (laughs) On that film, he got creative, having had no previous training, and employed a documentary shooting style, which kind of built upon his skill set from war photography. And this aesthetic became the cornerstone of the French New Wave movement and a turning point in the history of the cinematic language. So... Goodbye to a legend, and hopefully more will follow in his footsteps. Merci beaucoup. 96 years is a pretty long time to live, though, and 75 films, the guy did a good job. And here's Charles Hain with this week's gear news. Hey, so the biggest gear news right now is that GoPro is recalling all of their Karma drones, and even worse, they announced it at 6.30 p.m. Eastern time on election night. Wah, wah. Yeah. While America was obsessively watching the news, 
GoPro announced a recall of all the 2,500 drones that are out in the field. Apparently, a small number of drones have lost power while in operation. Uh, if you're not that familiar with drones, they fly up in the air, and if they lose power, they plummet to the ground. Uh, the Karma weighs 35.5 ounces, which is slightly more than two pounds, which is about half a brick, and it can fly up to 14,000 feet. If you imagine dropping half a brick out of an airplane at 14,000 feet, uh, that's more or less what happens if a GoPro Karma loses its power in the middle of the air. Uh, this is what happens when you name your product Karma. Uh, this is very bad. No one appears to have been injured yet, and uh, presumably all the owners who've registered their purchase are being contacted directly, but there are always owners who don't register, and releasing this news in a way designed to make it so no one notices it uh, while we're all glued to the television news is pretty lame on GoPro's part. That's some sketchy stuff, GoPro. Yeah. Like, if this results in even one person who should have heard about this and returned their drone not hearing about it, that is a serious bummer and a safety risk. Um, I know GoPro's been having a tough year. Their stock price took a major hit a couple months ago. They just had to release that they're not going to have enough Hero bl Blacks for Christmas. I understand why they wanted to minimize this news story. But GoPro, you were supposed to be cool. And this is kind of a dick move. In other tech news this week, uh, YouTube is now HDR capable. Uh, YouTube has always been really great about new tech standards. They did HD really early, 4K. They've done stereographic content, although a lot of people probably haven't appreciated it. Um, and this week they brought HDR with four launch videos mastered in HDR uh, and the ability for any user to upload their own footage to YouTube in HDR, and they worked really closely with Blackmagic DaVinci Resolve to make sure that there would be an easy workflow for people working in HDR. Of course, the same as with 4K and HD, you need an HDR-capable display to be able to see the full benefits of the format. So the new Samsung 4K TVs have it built in, the new LGs as well. That and a Chromecast Ultra, and you'll be set. But odds are... I don't know of any computers that do HDR, even the newest MacBook Pro, even the $4,000 laptop you just bought and need eight dongles for is not HDR capable. Final tech news of the week, Adobe Max happened last week, uh, came with some big announcements for Adobe After Effects and Premiere with a lot of VR tools and a new social media panel which should make sharing and tracking your videos much easier. The social tracking features are particularly fascinating in that they aggregate data from across a variety of platforms simultaneously. And having that closely and directly integrated with Premiere and Encoder should make sharing and managing your video content nearly effortless. Also at Max this year, Quentin Tarantino had a panel discussion with Ann Loons and about technology and his future as a filmmaker, his much-discussed retirement plan after his 10th film. That's two more for those who are counting. Uh, check it out. We've got a summary. Here are your upcoming grant deadlines for the week. The Miller Packin Film Fund has their winter deadline on November 15th. This is the first year for the fund, which is financed by the Rogovi Foundation. Grants totaling 150000 will be awarded to between 6 and 10 filmmakers. And if this sounds familiar to you, it's because maybe four months ago, five months ago, geez, maybe longer, we gave their summer grant deadline, which was in June. This is a biannual grant. Each grant is one-time only and offered in amounts of between $5,000 to $25,000. It's a documentary film grant that has three categories you can submit your film to, education, the environment, and civics. 
And in the festival world, South by Southwest has their virtual cinema deadline on November 17th. I'm sure all of you are familiar with South by Southwest, which takes place in Austin, Texas. Next year, it takes place from March 10th to 19th, 2017. The virtual cinema category is open to what South by Southwest refers to as mixed reality videos. So these can include VR, AR, and 360 videos. While the category has been around for a few years now, this is the first time South by Southwest will be opening up submissions for it. Projects are required to have a total runtime of 20 minutes or less, and the content will be showcased alongside the VRAR track conference programming, which takes place Tuesday, March 14th to Thursday, March 16th of the festival. If you are a filmmaker with disabilities or your film is showcasing characters with disabilities, you may want to consider applying for the Real Abilities New York Disabilities Film Festival which has a deadline of November 15th. If you follow this podcast, you might remember that I interviewed co-founder Isaac Zablocki and two of the festival's filmmakers, Daisy Wright from Enter the Fawn and Maximon Monahan from Voice of the Voiceless, on the No Film School podcast back in May. We talked about the representation of disabled people both behind the camera and on screen. I think the episode was called, like, How to Make Movies About Invisible People. This year's edition of the festival takes place in New York from March 9th to the 15th. It's the festival's ninth year. It's the largest one in the country dedicated to promoting awareness and appreciation of the lives, stories, and artistic expressions of people with different abilities. And uh, they were great people, really interesting. It's a really thoughtfully programmed festival, so I encourage you to apply. And if you don't fall into those categories, then definitely check out the festival in March. And if you submit your work to that festival and it gets accepted, don't you automatically gain entrance? into some of their other festivals around the country or their their other editions of this event around the country? Yeah, that's right. It was founded here in New York and the main festival is in New York, but they have a touring program that would uh, give a chance, give your film a chance to get exposure all around the country. So definitely worth checking out. We talk about Vimeo and Indie Film Weekly a lot, and that's because everyone knows that the world's best filmmakers call Vimeo their online home. Now, they've offered a special discount on Vimeo Pro memberships for you, our listeners. Save 15% when you go to vimeo.com slash professionals, get pro, and enter the code NFS at checkout. When you do, you can upload up to 20 gigabytes of video each week and showcase your videos with unlimited bandwidth in Vimeo's ad-free 4K player. Plus, they just launched a cleaner and more customizable profile page that helps you showcase your videos. You can even upload a cover video you'll get access to all of Vimeo Pro's powerful tools and join a supportive community of other passionate filmmakers and video professionals, just like at No Film School. A couple things you should know. The discount's limited to one per person and is only valid for your first year of membership. And in this week's Ask No Film School question, Ahab Easy Ismail asked us, Hey guys, I'm creating my website right now, and I've been playing around with a few templates on Squarespace, but I'm wondering if there's anything else out there that you guys could recommend. He wanted to know what's the best website creation tool for filmmakers. So I have stuck with Squarespace, and I've had great experiences with it. Um, Yes, it's more targeted for stills. But I host my videos on Vimeo, and I create galleries in Squarespace, and it seems to give me pretty good results. The main benefit of Squarespace for me is how well it translates to different media. It looks good on the web. It looks good on iPhones and tablets. I used to have another server that I won't name, like an earlier competitor to Squarespace, and I had a client once who was like, oh, I tried to look at your site on my iPhone, and there was nothing there. So, like, they didn't. People won't try and look at your site like four times, frustratingly. So Squarespace does a great cross-tablet formatting. I'm also a big believer in diving really deep and getting amazing 
at things that matter to you, like filmmaking, and outsourcing the other stuff. And if you're not a web designer, uh, outsource that to Squarespace or Wix and uh, let them do that for you. One other option you should consider is custom galleries in Vimeo. Vimeo is an entirely video-focused tool, and they do these custom galleries with good layout options, and you can use them with a Vimeo URL or your own custom URL. Um, I have a Squarespace for my main site because it feels slightly slicker, but I use Vimeo Pro for custom portfolios for, like, color or cinematography, or I'll build a custom portfolio as a one-off when I'm applying for a gig with just the videos that are tailored for that gig. And I think Vimeo Pro is a really great tool for this that not a lot of people seem to take advantage of. That's great advice. I actually didn't know that about Vimeo Pro, um, who sponsored this show. So, Oh! Yeah, thanks, guys. I, that was a total coincidence, I promise. I did not know that before I wrote that yeah. part. Anyway, um, so I actually started my career as a web designer, so I do have some experience here. And in Ahab's question, he mentioned that he knows about Wix, but he doesn't think their layouts are clean, like as clean as Squarespace's, for example. And I actually, I want to encourage him and you all to take another look because they sort of recently upgraded and I redid my own site in Wix. And personally, I found it to have the cleanest, most flexible layouts and be so unbelievably easy to use. I previously used WordPress, which he also mentioned in his question, and I thought it was pretty difficult to customize it without knowing code. And it sounds like, you know, Ahab really wants to customize because he has a specific layout in mind. Um, so Wix allowed me lots of flexibility, including placing videos anywhere on the page so you don't have to stick to like a specific video grid. And I was also able to put the whole initial site together in one afternoon. At Wix is cool. Like like many of the others, it's free to use. The catch is that um, you do have to pay if you want to remove their logo from your page, and that's like their logo banner is kind of ugly. But I found it worth the cost um, weighed against the other benefits of using it. So good luck, Ahab. Let us know what you decide. So we've got some great indie movies opening this week, coming straight to VOD. Uh, our own writer Chris Boone's movie Sense is coming out on November 15th. He's our, our in-house screenwriting expert. He wrote and directed this film. Um, it's been getting really great buzz. It's about an uncommonly smart 12-year-old girl who uses her gift for mathematics and enlists her frenemies to revamp the school penny drive into a major money-making operation. Chris actually wrote an article for us about how he chose to take back his premiere to forego the typical path to, dis to distribution and skip festivals altogether to premiere his film on a short roadshow that he organized through Tug. Uh, that's a platform that helps you screen your films in theaters around the country. Um, you'll be able to find the film Sense on November 15th on all cable and internet VOD services. And if Tug sounds familiar, it's because we also had one of our other writers, Oakley Anderson Moore, write about her experience using it. She used the platform to screen her movie Brave New Wild um, and wrote an article about that too. And I mentioned Oakley because... Also coming out this Friday is Asperger's R Us. If you can remember back to South by Southwest last year, Oakley sat down with director Alex Lehman and composer Crystal Grooms Magano to talk about their collaboration on the soundtrack. The documentary follows four friends on the autism spectrum whom have bonded through humor and created an improv comedy troupe entitled Asperger's R Us. It sounded like you said awesome spectrum. I said the same thing. <laughs> it is an awesome spectrum. I feel spectrum. like they are on the awesome spectrum. They really, really are. They certainly prove it in this movie as they prepare for one final ambitious show before going their separate ways. 
And coming to Amazon Prime Instant, a movie that I've talked about probably like five times already on this podcast, but you can now see it for free if you have Amazon Prime Instant on Saturday, November 12th, Jeremy Saulnier's follow-up to Blue Ruin, Green Room. It's a great movie to watch if you have a lot of aggression and sort of uh, could fall into some similar themes revolving around this week's show. Uh, because it's about a punk band that gets caught up uh, in a skinhead stronghold after a concert. It was sort of a controversial film here at No Film School because when we saw it at Sundance last year, I really enjoyed it, but certain other members of the staff who aren't here, well, who remain nameless, didn't like it. But I think it's really good. And I also really like Jeremy Saulnier's other work. We have coverage of a panel Saulnier was on at the Lower East Side Festival where he talked about some of the finer points of his craft. I really liked what he had to say about screenwriting in particular. He said, I try to deviate from standard structure. Green Room was an exercise in tension building. I try not to meet expectations or check the boxes off of what happens in each act, but swerve very violently away from what you think would happen, dig into that, and write myself into corners. The challenge isn't the overall, how should I make this intense structure? It's how do I keep going with this? And when I find myself without a situation, just sit there and invest in it. That's when people die in green room because I couldn't think of a way out. So I think that's a really interesting strategy to screenwriting, writing your characters into corners as you write yourself into corners. And if you really can't think of any way to get them out of their sort of conflict then just kill them, I think that's a, that's a cool thing. It's kind of like labyrinthian in a way. I'm hearing some weird parallels to our political situation right now. Yeah, what? <laughs> it's also how I like to deal with my boyfriends. Oh, riding into corner, riding yourself into corners, and then killing and them. Until so I can't see my way out, and then killing them. That see, that's that. That has all the great hallmarks of a horror screenplay or something, or a thriller. So or reality, <laughs> or reality. I have a special place in my heart for a film that's landing on Netflix on November fifteenth. It's called Men Go to Battle. And it premiered at Tribeca two years ago. And it's directed by a friend of mine, Zachary Treats, and co-written by Caitlin Scheel, who you may also know as the girl on House of Cards. One of the women on, yeah. on House of Cards. <laughs> Which girl? She was also in uh, Kate Plays Christine. Yes, that's probably a more apt comparison. <laughs> <laughs> it's really the definition of a run-and-gun movie in every sense of the word. It's about um, two brothers who are living on a homestead in the South in a period leading up to the Civil War. And they live a really isolated existence where it's just the two of them living off each other's banter and um, self-sustaining, trying to keep their farm alive. And what's cool about it is that it doesn't really feel like a period film. Like, period films can feel really stilted and, you know, the camera's fixed and there are long sweeping shots. This one feels like a really rough around the edges, almost like modern character piece. And that's what's so cool about it is that, like, the Civil War is a backdrop, but it's not the story. The story is about these two people. The filmmaker shot it by basically infiltrating a Civil War reenactment site. Um, they took a skeleton crew of about five people, and they just drove on down to Kentucky and filmed in uh, this huge battle reenactment with all their equipment hidden in a burlap sack. They dressed up as Civil War reenactors, and they just embedded themselves in these big reenactments. And the film definitely does have that sense of, you know, urgency like like somebody being followed through a battle scene it's one of the things i like most about getting to work here at no film school that we really find out these crazy stories behind all the movies and that is definitely one of the craziest i heard this year 
We'll post Emily's article about the backstory of Men Go to Battle in this week's podcast post. One of the most highly praised and anticipated films from TIFF this year is hitting theaters on Friday. A director Denis Villeneuve's foray into sci-fi, Arrival, stars Amy Adams as a language specialist who's brought in to try to communicate with aliens who land on Earth. And um, you may have seen the ads. They're already out. It's, it's a really different take on the alien invasion type movie because it bucks convention. It's not um, very sensational. It's really a slow burning and almost mundane um, in its treatment, but it has like a spectacular twist at the end. Right. I actually was talking with a few of my friends about this because a TV spot came on for uh, Arrival when we were watching the election coverage the other day. And the only two things they highlighted were that it has a 100 percent on Rotten Tomatoes and that there's this crazy twist ending. They didn't like talk about the director of it who's about to blow up. If, I mean, he's already a household name for a lot of us. And I thought it was just interesting the way that whoever distributes this movie is marketing it as a sort of like a major blockbuster sci-fi event, even though it's still really at its core an indie film. So I'm excited to see it. I mean, Paramount is distributing it and obviously they're a Hollywood studio and they're, I think they might be making a mistake by taking the conventional route to advertise a very non-conventional film. But the fact that it has a 100% rating on on Rotten Tomatoes means that people are responding positively. But isn't that like before it's really been out to like the general public? Well, Rotten Tomatoes is a critic aggregator. Mm. So it's not it doesn't have anything to do with uh, the public's reaction. Yeah. So we'll see what happens when it actually does come out. But meanwhile, I had a really interesting interview with the DP Bradford Young, who also shot Ava DuVernay's Selma about this very topic, about how do you shoot a non-traditional sci-fi movie. And it was fascinating, their whole approach to it. So uh, that article will be up on the site this week. Here's some of what Bradford Young had to say in our interview. Um, I think there's always, every film is a certain level of like reprogramming and like mm-hmm. deconstructing my own sort of colonized um, mentality around what filmmaking is. And so... Since I'm already constantly in that process, it was just a matter of just like turning off, turning off the echo chamber, right? Like, mm. you know, appreciating and respecting all the contributions that have been made before, especially you know when we think about a master like Stanley Kubrick, right? But also at the same time, not being, not being, um, you know, Stanley Kubrick or Ridley Scott, but at the same time, not being arrested by what they brought to the table. And I think there's some real serious questions about. Um, and such for me, like in terms of lighting, there's real serious questions about what do aliens bring with them when they arrive, right? And mm-hmm. part of it was saying that humans are sort of arrogant in the sense that they think that aliens would show up and bring, would have access to the same alloys or the same, you know, materials that we have access to. You know, what if they didn't? What would they mm-hmm. bring? And so that freed us up to be really sensitive and very particular about how we executed the sort of visual style of film. And now for a couple shout outs, I want to congratulate my best words with friends opponent, Eric Mallory Morgan, for winning first prize for his screenplay Tanya in the Samuel Goldwyn Writing Awards competition. The awards were started by Samuel Goldwyn himself in 1955 to recognize promising young writers. So go Eric and the other winners. Also, NAB New York is going on this week as we record, and Doc NYC started last night. So look out for coverage of both of those events on the site, and we will bring you any news from each of them on next week's show as well. Thanks so much for joining us. 
As always, we'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, hit us up with those five stars. You can read about everything we talked about today on the show and more about the craft of filmmaking at nofilmschool.com. And please stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. I'm at E.L. Booter on Twitter. And also look out for an article about what Michael Moore has to say about Donald Trump's election coming up today. And you can find me on Twitter at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim, John, Jim, 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 Jim. And this has been an episode. Oh, it has. Thanks, guys. See you next week. Bye.